Full disclosure, I'm Ruvain Farzad. And so it is, President-elect Donald Trump. And so it was. The Ku Klux Klan endorsed him. Aryan agitator David Duke is rejoicing. Both the alternative and the unabashed right wings are thumping their chests. And yet, Trump also took a good chunk of the Jewish vote. How to reconcile this, especially as Washington feels these huge shifting plate tectonics? And what about Trump and Israel? We ask the rabbis. Stay with us. This week's broadcast of Full Disclosure made possible by my good friends at Elwood Thompson since 1989, located at the top of Carytown, really the best market in Richmond. Customer empowerment, non-GMO, no advertising to children, locally made and prepared foods, healthy oils. You have a food advocate there. You have a health coach. You have Rick and Molly Hood. You have Indian Wednesdays and the third Thursday pairings menus. You must check them at the corner of Elwoods and Thompson's, hence the name, and at elwoodthompsons.com. Let me ask you a question that our ancestors have been asking. I mean, since the dawn of time. What makes this episode different from all other episodes? Well, for starters, we've managed to land not one, but two rabbis in one room, i.e. David Asher, rabbi at Knesset Beth Israel, Central Virginia's traditional synagogue. He's active with the America-Israel Public Affairs Committee, and he heads the local rabbinical council. How are you, sir? Very well. Thank you for having me. His colleague, uh, Rabbi Michael Knopf of Temple Bethel, a conservative synagogue just 10 minutes away um, from the aforementioned. He blogs for Haaretz, Times of Israel, and Huffington Post, Huffington Post, and um, is a Rabbi Without Borders fellow. How are you, sir? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Disclosure, he's also my rabbi. And uh, also joining us, the lovely Robin Galpern, a busy tribeswoman who is an occupational therapist. When she's not doing that, she's a congressional member of APAC. Uh, how are you? I'm doing fine. Thank you for having me. I understand you were telling us you voted for Ralph Nader. Like, what happened this time around? I saw you at preschool pickup the day after the election, and you were, I mean, your mood was kind of funereal. It's not that Hillary lost. You have no love lost for Hillary, you told me, but that Trump won. So what did you expect? Um, I didn't expect Trump to win. I It was pretty shocking, uh, pretty shocking. But a few weeks after um, that we find ourselves now, it's it's not productive to be that emotional. We have to move forward and figure out how to productively make things happen that are important to us as Americans. Now, I want to step back from this for a minute before we delve into uh, – the rabbi's thoughts. This is, you have to give them plaudits uh, because this is a treacherously difficult thing to even talk about or write about because not a single congregation in America is unanimous about politics or Israel or Judaism or what's pro-Israel, what's anti-Israel. Um, it takes a lot of uh, chutzpah, and I, I don't know what anatomically we refer to it as. I, I only took enough Hebrew from my bar mitzvah, but to even come here and share candor on um, many third rail issues. We're talking about the alt-right here. There's an enormously heated debate going on in the Jewish community right now if you look at uh, Twitter and, and what the uh, Trump administration represents. Uh, so I give you props for agreeing to come here. I know it's not easy. So having said that, Ra Rabbi Asher, what are your thoughts coming out of this? Because I've never, like I said at the top, I've never seen any other instance, any other presidential election where, for example, a, a decent plurality, borderline majority of Orthodox Jews sampled in the United States. 
agreed with the Ku Klux Klan's endorsement for Donald Trump. I mean, particular stars had to align for that to happen. Yeah. Well, again, I want to thank you for having me. I would say that for starters, I don't uh, consider myself to be a political pundit, but really a religious figure. And uh, since that's the case, I really can speak about it more from a religious perspective. And uh, it's really a time when I see religion as hopefully playing a major role in unifying many different communities and uh, and communities that would otherwise have very little to do with each other. And I think it's important it's important to take this uh, you know, with a a sense of context. We're talking about uh, political issues, not personal issues. We're talking about uh, differences of opinion. We're not talking about uh, major uh, catastrophic uh, life issues that people grapple with in terms of their families and in terms of more significant issues that affect them, affect their living. Of course, this is something which hits very close to home for us We're very concerned about extremism and something that we have to watch very carefully. But this is also not something which poses an immediate danger, but something rather that is uh, scary, but um, something which is not necessarily going to happen tomorrow, but just requires vigilance. Rabbi Naf, tell me what you think. Yeah. So again, thanks for having me on. you know, I feel like I'm somewhere uh, um, in a mix of uh, of uh, our other two friends here. I I, um, I like Robin was um, was was really shocked uh, that when Robin Galper, not Ruvain Farzad, exactly. If I qualify that. Okay. Um, that when uh, when when I woke up on Wednesday morning to the news that uh, Trump was elected, I think that most of the country, even uh, Trump's own supporters, were were a little bit stunned by that because most of the pundits were were predicting a Clinton victory, maybe even a Clinton landslide. Um, you know, I I I disagree uh, to a certain extent with my with my colleague here. I think that uh, for a, a lot of people, um, there there is a sense that there are some uh, real uh, significant, perhaps even life and death issues at stake. I mean, the the election of a president um, uh, is a significant step in the direction of our country's future. Um, you know, the there is a, a certain degree of trickle down uh, from the you know highest levels of leadership in, in our country, so that uh, uh, tone and, and statements are you know really matter. Uh, and um, uh, who, what one promises during a campaign, and uh, who the supporters one cultivates during a campaign, uh, end up matter because they end up being uh, who you play to uh, when you govern. Uh, and so. On all those levels, I think that there's a lot of uh, justified cause for concern. Uh, There was during the Trump candidacy, and there certainly uh, is in a Trump presidency, um, everything from uh, the the, the sort of uh, virulent white nationalism uh, that uh, um, was, uh, whether intentionally or unintentionally, I think that there's room for debate there, cultivated uh, during the campaign and and at least not... uh, uh, disavowed by the Trump campaign um, has uh, really uh, exposed itself as a very uh, dominant and um, and and threatening force in in American life. Um, so I woke up on Wednesday morning, uh, in some ways not fully recognizing the country that I woke up to because I uh, uh, had grown up in a in a context in which uh, anti-Semitism didn't really exist uh, on a significant level in which. 
uh, Islamophobia existed in pockets of the country, but not on a significant level. Um, uh, bigotry of other kinds, uh, uh, discrimination against uh, LGBT people, um, uh, discrimination against immigrants, all of these uh, sort of uh, th uh, thoughts and, and now actions uh, against certain minority groups um, that were awoken uh, during the campaign and, uh, and, and in the wake of uh, Trump's election, um, I think are significant things. Uh, and then uh, the, the uh, promise of uh, the policy agenda of the Trump presidency, I think, um, is a lot of cause for concern uh, as a Jew um, and also as as an American. I think that, uh, that there, you know, there certainly are uh, uh, you know, life issues that are not at play here for many people, but there are um, a significant number of uh, uh, very, very important um, uh, matters of, of livelihood and well-being um, that are really on the line for, for a lot of people, the Jewish community included. Just, uh, you know, I appreciate um, those comments and kind of sharpening the conversation. And I believe that leadership has come in the form of President Obama when he seems not to be uh, jumping off uh, the cliff just yet, and he seems to be having a more measured approach of telling the American public to uh, give our new leadership a chance without getting into specifics, because there are certainly many concerns that we could talk about. Um, and then when it comes specifically to anti-Semitism, you know, I think Alan Dershowitz, who uh, is certainly one of the foremost thinkers uh, about modern-day anti-Semitism, seems to also say the same thing as our president, which is really to wait until Washington or the new Washington uh, gets there and begins their jobs and sees what happens. But that being said, I think we have to be concerned because the rhetoric is something that we've never seen before in our lifetimes. Rabbi Naf and I are about the same age. Mike and I are about the, the same age. And we have never seen something like this before in the past few decades. And I think it's important to note that, yes, anti-Semitism has existed. Certainly, I can share many stories about whether it be my congregants, whether it be from my childhood, and maybe, you know, maybe we'll get to some of those at some point. But uh, there's no doubt, though, that Islamophobia is on the rise, that even though uh, Judaism or anti-Semitism accounts for, I believe, half of all uh, religious hatred um, in terms of uh, religious acts of religious hatred, um, Islamophobia and attacks against the Muslim community are are happening at a rate, are increasing at a rate that is frustratingly al alarming. And uh, we do have to be, we do have to talk about these issues because if we talk about these issues, then they will be less likely to rear their head for our children and for our children's children, et cetera. Now, Mrs. Galpern, I want to take a bit of a hard turn here, Robin Galpern. Um, away from the home front, what does it mean to be pro-Israel? What, what, what defines pro-Israel? How would you look at the Obama administration in the past few years in terms of Israel policy? What worried you about Hillary Clinton? And give us the parameters of, of, of measuring from your mind. Um, being pro-Israel, I think, is a lot about being educated of what exactly, on all fronts, Israel does internationally for peace in the Middle East, um, as well as all of the amazing things that Israel does to defend its citizens, all of its citizens, not just the Jewish ones. Um, being pro-Israel is about 
supporting their right to have the R&D that they have in research and development in, in medicine and technologies and showing that this small plot of land that Jews for thousands of years were given this land in their in the by God in their Bible um, have have the right to this land and being pro Israel is about being educated and supporting everything that Israel means to all religions. Well, because I want to know because you you know it's a it's a it's a Rorschach type question. It's a kaleidoscopic question to ask congregants even what does pro Israel mean? For example, so, was was George W. Bush good for Israel in the? Eight years there, you kind of give a carte blanche to what happened. And then after that, Obama and Netanyahu pretty much openly don't like each other. Was that Absolutely. good for Israel Absolutely. or was that bad for Israel? I want to I get to—not so, that we're going to get any consensus coming out Absolutely. of this. Absolutely. So I think Obama, over the last eight years, politically has supported Israel. He has done what America has done since Israel's inception is to support Israel as a bipartisan issue. The health and the security of Israel is a vital necessity for peace almost all over the world. The intel that Israel gives the United States and other superpowers about what is going on in Iran and what is going on in Saudi Arabia and what is going on in all of its neighbors is vital to military stability. You know how to approach a quote-unquote enemy if you know what you're fighting. When you don't know what the enemy is or who it is, you don't know how to approach it. Israel is a huge part of how we know how to talk about Iran, how to talk about terrorism all over the world, because Israel gets that intel. People don't always believe it. There's a lot of rhetoric out there that's very anti-Israel. A lot of it is, is naive, and there's so much media out there that's anti-Israel that it's hard to see the vastness of what it actually does and all the positiveness of it. Obama, I believe, is pro-Israel politically, as in he has supported the need to maintain Israel the way it is. But outside, unfortunately, it's obvious that he, him and Netanyahu don't agree. They don't agree. And they haven't played very well together. Obama was insulted because Netanyahu had to talk at the UN and he wasn't exactly invited. But Netanyahu's got to do what Netanyahu's got to do. And Obama has to say, listen, that's not the way the rules are. Amazingly enough, Trump is now in office, not following any of the rules at all. And he was elected. So when Netanyahu says, I can't, this is too important. I can't wait for an invitation. Obama's not exactly on the same page as I am at the moment. I need to talk to the people who need to hear my message. Um, and that came across very negative and sort of entered into a whole debacle. But Israel and the United States have always been like brothers since Israel's inception. And sometimes brothers fight. The important thing is that they get their act together and they talk about what's most important to the world. I mean, we're talking about things like Iran's nuclear issues and defense of people that have the only freedom of speech and freedom of religion in the Middle East. How, how do you deny that that's not an important thing that's valued bipartisan? Well, you know, in the political vagaries of this right here is for, for 
I mean, for decades since since the era of FDR, Jews have been really overwhelmingly supporters of the Democrat running for office, and that still held true with Hillary Clinton. I mean, the numbers are still being counted. She had a one as of tonight has a one point seven million popular vote lead, and it was still statistically consistent. What is surprising this time around is the number of uh, people on the uh, religious right of Judaism who've come out in support of Trump, whether tacitly or quietly or through uh, Confederates, and at the same time seeing websites that are very explicitly linked with the Ku Klux Klan, with uh, far right-wing elements. You've seen a, a, a convention of the alt-right, and this was very bizarre yesterday. The uh, the Vietnamese American star Tila Tequila making a Sig Heil Nazi salute with two other guys from the alt right. Um, so, and I, and, and it, it attracted my interest from kind of a kind of strange bedfellows all around. I mean, maybe it's just a coalition because it's a coalition. But here's what's interesting to me is there's a lot of introspection about the Democratic Party right now and what kind of Democratic Party has to rebuild to contend and kind of dig out from this hole. And there's a lot of talk of a, of a leftward lurch to the Democratic Party. Um, you have to bring in more of the elements that were pro-Bernie Sanders, very much more aligned with Black Lives Matter. If you look in the Black Lives Matter movement, there is an anti-Israel clause that kind of conflates it with apartheid. Um, and that they're considering as a replacement, I think, for the, the DNC, someone who's actively been uh, mentioned in kind of you know, being affiliated with anti-Israel elements out there, that it's more normalized, just as the right wing of the Republican Party is more overtly alt-right. So is this a concern where the Democratic Party, however the Democratic Party reconstitutes, I throw it to you, Rabbi Knopf, um, that it's going to bring in much more of it. And we're going to get into talk of BDS, which is boycott, divest, sanctions, the, the, the movement to kind of boycott Israel. The question is whether it's a concern Yes, that it's going to gain more currency in the reconstitution of the Democratic Party. If you think Hillary Clintonianism yeah. has been vanquished in this and you're going to have to recreate something better for 2020 or 2018, are you concerned about Israel in the mix? Well, it's it's hard to say. I mean, you know, it, it goes to the very question that you posed to uh, Robin just a few minutes ago, which is what does it mean to be pro-Israel? And I, and I think that there are um, – potentially a lot of different applications to uh, to being pro-Israel. I mean, to me, being pro-Israel, uh, you know, as a basic statement means that you um, believe in the right of Jewish self-determination and, and sovereignty. Um, uh, but, uh, but, but for many uh, Zionists, uh, the vision of Jewish sovereignty um, is not only Jewish, but also democratic. And so insofar that there are uh, challenges to democracy in Israel and challenges of democracy in Israel, especially vis-a-vis -vis the um, situation with the Palestinians, uh, I think that uh, it's still possible to be pro-Israel and to be a significant critic both within and outside of Israel um, of uh, Israel's policies with relation to, uh, to say, the Palestinians, for instance, um, and its uh, um, uh, continued inability to resolve that conflict. Um, recognizing that it's not, of course, uh, all of Israel's uh, fault or responsibility that the conflict hasn't been resolved. But in any event, uh, I, I think that uh, there's there's two kind of issues at play here. And, and I've seen these issues play out over the past, you know, 10 years in my sort of public life uh, in, as a Jewish leader. Um, uh, and there are probably people who have a better historical perspective even than I do. But um, I, I've seen um, a, a concerted attempt... Um, 
uh, on behalf of uh, some politicians and some groups to uh, to to do precisely what APAC uh, strives not to have happen, which is for Israel to become a uh, wedge political issue between the two parties. Um, you know, I saw that play out a little bit last uh, summer in the debate over the Iran nuclear deal, um, where the the dividing lines between supporters and opponents of the deal were were pretty consistent between Republicans and Democrats. And so there there are um, uh, issues with respect to Israel, but I uh, I think that uh, it's true in a lot of cases on the Democratic side uh, that. What is often characterized as anti-Israel is simply a different vision of what it means to be pro-Israel um, and, uh, and, and the belief that uh, Jewish self-determination is impossible, uh, uh, especially in the long term, in, in a context where um, it's perpetually at war uh, with, with its neighbors. Um, so, uh, so what I see on the horizon for the Democratic Party, even if it uh, lurches leftward, um, it may very well be that it uh, uh, pursues a, an, an agenda that is um, at odds with what uh, uh, governments in Israel might like the American government to be pursuing, especially if those governments continue to be right-wing governments. Um, I'm not necessarily concerned that those uh, approaches or positions will be openly hostile to Israel. Uh, there certainly are those elements that exist within the Democratic Party, although there are those elements that exist within the Republican Party, too. Um, and we have this interesting dynamic now, I'm sure you'll bring it up later, where uh, you have people who are uh, seemingly pretty hostile to Jews and Judaism, but maybe are pro-Israel, which is a unique phenomenon that we're, that we're seeing right now um, that exists on the right. And so you have people who are very positive toward Jews on the left, but not necessarily positive toward Israel on the left. So you have that dynamic playing out. Um, but I, I don't see uh, at the moment, I think APAC still has a lot of strength and a lot of sway. Uh, America-Israel Public Affairs Committee. That's right. In both uh, in both chambers of Congress and all parties, um, I don't see uh, pro-Israel being a fault line uh, between uh, the two parties at the moment. It may be, though, that the the specifics of what people feel is pro-Israel, that might shift. And you have um, another more, you have another player that is emerging on the scene. Its level of significance, I think, still is uh, to be seen, but uh, um, another pro-Israel lobbying organization called J Street uh, that is uh, um, uh, lobbying primarily uh, uh, left-leaning members of Congress and and other officials uh, toward more progressive policies in Israel, especially with relation to the Palestinian issue. So that that's a player on the horizon too. Although again, I'm not sure if that's an anti-Israel player. It's just a different vision of what it means to be pro-Israel. Full disclosure: I'm Robin Farzad. We are talking to a pair of rabbis and a concerned. Uh, Congregant and local Jewish mother about uh, President-elect Donald Trump, Jews, the state of Israel. Uh, this is a, a, a multi-chromatic conversation. Hope we don't offend anybody. We're just trying to uh, get at kind of some of the fault lines and pressure points. Uh, Rabbi David Asher, um, there is uh, an enormous amount of anxiety about this Trump appointment, uh, Steve Bannon. Um, they're very worried. Uh, the um, Anti-Defamation League, among several others, came out and they issued a rare statement of alarm 
The ADL was pretty blunt. They said, it is a sad day when a man who presided over the premier website of the, quote, alt-right, a loose-knit group of white nationalists and unabashed anti-Semites and racists, is slated to be a senior staff member in the, quote, People's House, said the CEO of the ADL, Jonathan Greenblatt. And uh, there was a former colleague of mine at Business Week magazine, Josh Green, who interviewed the late uh, Andrew Breitbart, that was the website founder. Um, he said uh, to Josh Green, he described Bannon with sincere admiration, called him the Lenny Riefenstahl of the Tea Party movement, referring to the Nazi propagandist and director of Hitler commissioned film Triumph of the Will. What I want to know, Rabbi Asher, is when these issues kind of, you know, the ADL can address them, but um, the America-Israel Public Affairs Committee, it seems like they can compartmentalize. They can say, well, all that banter aside, if we know a person is largely going to neglect the Israel issue or uh, be amenable to doing business with uh, Netanyahu in addition to Putin and various other people around the country, that's our single issue. How does that fly with you when you see all of this banter about the alt-right, Sig Heils, uh, all manner of Jewish reporters, I can tell you over Twitter, who've been uh, taunted by neo-Nazis, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're photoshopped and put into Auschwitz and various situations. I mean, there has to be an intersection of these two worlds. Yeah, I think that's a very important question. Look, first of all, I was excited to see this morning uh, that Kimberly Strassel, who I'm not so familiar with, but in the Wall Street Journal, had an interview uh, with Steve Bannon, and I've been waiting to hear his own words. And it's what still seems to be clear to me is that he considers himself to be a nationalist. And after having the platform to defend himself, um, it was uh, still disconcerting. I think he had an opportunity to dispel many fears that uh, a lot of my congregants and uh, a lot of my friends and neighbors have. I have many people, of course, who are not uh, upset by the appointment. There are many people who say that uh, this is all fabricated by those in the media. Personally, uh, I have concerns, and if I were... Uh, the president-elect, then uh, that would mean a lot of things. But uh, one of the things that it would mean is uh, is to say to my new employee, my new staff member, look, you have a chance now to make sure this isn't a distraction for us going forward. Please communicate however, uh, wherever you need to, that these concerns are, are uh, that should not be in people's minds about yourself um, and that uh, in this history that you have, of making money and trafficking in, uh, uh, in demographics that are highly objectionable um, doesn't speak to who you are as a person. Uh, I think that, again, President Obama, Alan Dershowitz, Huma Abedin, many people on the other side of the aisle have said they are rooting for success with, uh, with regards to the president-elect. I feel the same way, but that doesn't have to do with people's fears because Ruven, uh, I would say that, that to me, I want to be concerned about what I can control. I can't control what President Trump does uh, as much as... Uh, nor what he r- says. Uh, nor what he says. And, uh, and Rabbi Naf and I, as, uh, as rabbinical as we are, would never say that we have such powers. And uh, uh, the only thing that we can do is affect the change in our own backyards. And to me, the issue that needs to be worked on immediately is the issue of division is the issue of discord, is making sure that my congregants and my, my community, my city, comes together to, in a way that combats the, uh, 
what's being talked about, the sensationalism, the extremism. And there's extremism on both sides of the aisle. I'm very concerned that the new DNC chair might be Keith Ellison, someone who has a history of attacking the only Jewish state in the world, and I don't think that's a coincidence. I'm very hopeful that he'll be educated by uh, uh, those um, who he's friendly with in the Jewish community, equally concerned about uh, Steve Bannon and others who seem to not have a sensitivity to the values that that we grew up with. I think it's something particularly that millennials are sensitive to, that, uh, that really... Um, they need to press the pause button and they need to really uh, consider what their actions are, are saying to a younger electorate. With regards to um, what was talked about in, in terms of uh, what's considered to be pro-Israel, I just, uh, to me, a lot of the, and I don't know if we're going to get to this later in the conversation or not, but to me, um, I think a lot of the concerns that people have is how do you define Zionism? Zionism always meant to me that the Jewish people are equal to any other nation, to any other people, and have a right to sovereignty and and have a right to form a country. And for other people, it seems to mean that Zionism is colonialism or imperialism. And I can't think of anything farther from the truth based on my own upbringing, based on my own education within Zionism. And... I will admit to you uh, that I never thought that my root, that my rabbinate, that my professional life as a rabbi would have so much to do about Zionism. But I see Zionism attacked in a way that uh, scares me with regards to, is this part of the rising uh, religious hatred that we see? Is this part do you, do of— Do you conflate anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism? I mean, that's the $10 billion question. If we can't even agree on a definition, right. a standard definition for Zionism, is it self-determination for a historically oppressed people after the Holocaust, for example, or is it neocolonialism? If you can't even—if, if, for example, the Black Lives Matter group and the rabbinate don't even agree on— what constitutes right. Zionism? How are you going to know if you're for or against it? Well, I mean, I think to answer your question, I would say I have met people who are anti-Zionists who are not anti-Semites. That being said, a lot of anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. I'm very frustrated because um, I wanted to become more part of Black Lives Matter, and I can't. My mother marched with, uh, uh, with Martin Luther King, and she was part of the Civil Rights Movement, and my father, to some extent, was also. And I thought here was my opportunity to get involved, to help be a part of a solution, um, and to help be a part of writing an injustice that has poisoned our country. And um, I, I think it's it was really something that I was looking forward to being a part of. But when they pivoted to include uh, attacks against Israel... That, of course, is something that I can't stand for when people have a double standard for Israel uh, in relation to other countries. That, to me, is part of the definition of anti-Semitism in the 21st century. Now, hold that thought, Your Excellency. There is a... Uh, I just try to inject some... Come on. I'm, what am I going to call you? <laughs> Superfluidity, Your Excellency, Your Holiness. There is... You know, while we continue this conversation, I think it's an important vein of conversation just to... to to, to illustrate how black isn't black and white isn't white and gray isn't gray in this election, Breitbart, none other than Breitbart, ran a headline and accompanying video 
of Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner. Uh, this is the, the president-elect's daughter. Um, she's converted to Judaism and her uh, conservadox, we'd say orthodox Jewish husband, Jared Kushner, visiting the shrine to the, the gravesite of the venerated Lubavitcher Rebbe, Menachem Mendel Schneerson. He's the seventh and final rabbi in the Lubavitch line of Hasidic Jews and achieved worldwide fame and respect that persists today. Breitbart ran this with the video pretty much on the eve of the election uh, to tell you, I mean, if, if they just picked that night to go uh, visit the Lubavitcher shrine, right? So um, it tells you how strange the world is at this point. What's I mean, there in are the comment section? What? Read the comments. <laughs> well, there are dog whistles and there are dog whistles. It used to be, you know, back in the day, you were told, don't call it white supremacy. You know, coming out of the 1960s, call it a rule of law and law and order. And there are ways of saying things like if you see how George Bush 41 ran against Dukakis with Willie Horton. I know you're all young, but there are ways of making— I heard about it in history class. In history yeah. class. There are dog whistle <laughs> appeals. Now, what, you know, what, is, what is concerning well, to me, uh, Rabbi Asher, yeah. in that there used to be a strong coalition. If you look at, Rab, if you look at uh, Cornell West or some of the books that were written, Blacks and Jews Let the Healing Begin, coming out of the civil rights movement, that was a fabric that— that really didn't fray. You're coming out of a shared history of oppression and the New Deal. Uh, but lately, especially, you saw the Congressional Black Caucus hugely offended that Netanyahu uh, came to the United States, the Prime Minister of Israel, and dispensed with uh, proper White House protocol and meeting with House Republicans. And they saw that as a slight to the first African-American president. Um, and so right now, you see really no love lost between the, the several Jewish congressmen and senators you have and the Black Caucus. There's no... I, I just don't know of any, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter clearly took a hard convergence, uh, divergence away from the movement when we saw its wording came out. And you would think that Black Lives Matter would not have to enunciate uh, a condemnation of Israel like it was like a red herring or a canard. But they did. And there must be a reason that they did. Well, I, first of all, in defense of Black Lives Matter, I, I believe there is a great diversity within Black Lives Matter. There are many well-intentioned Black Lives Matter uh, activists, and it's a shame that uh, their message is being drowned out by uh, additional hatred that really distracts from the core message. Look, uh, Ruvain, I, I really see Breitbart as a tabloid, and uh, it is... Uh, Somewhat offensive to me to have the head of a tabloid at such a high level in government. That being said, you know, I defer to those who are involved in politics professionally who, who basically seem to say to, to the victor come the spoils um, and to give them a chance. In order to try to inspire myself, to try to give them a chance, you know, you turn to religious and to um, just uh, – religious reasoning as well as psychological reasoning that you try not to judge a man and you try not to judge a man until you walk a mile in their shoes. And as hard as that might be to do for someone who seems to uh, have a partnership or an allegiance or a relationship with this so-called alt-right, uh, we don't have a choice. And to me, um, as an American, it's important to cheer on the success of our country and with that comes hoping for the best for this new administration. Mm. Talk to me, Robin Galvin. Um, I think it's important just to state that I don't think, and I think a lot of the country does not see Trump as a white supremacist supporter. Um, I think a lot of the rhetoric that's going around and a lot of the— but what about support versus suborn? 
He didn't come out and condemn any of these people. That's, so that's exactly my point. It's a little cynical that's if exactly you accept the dog whistles, you'll accept the support. I mean, the Klan and David Duke comes out and he didn't actually come out and say, no, that's disgusting. I, that was exactly going to be my point. I mean, point. he's you not short words. of words exactly, right? Come on, Ruben. You stole my words. That was Because that I'm be the my wise argument. son on Pesach. That, that's why. Go ahead. <laughs> you the words. I don't think he's a suprem- uh, a white supremacist. I, I don't think a lot of the the people that have created the fear over his um, over his elected um, status at this point, they don't believe that he is this extremist. But the problem is the rhetoric that we're hearing and the reactions that we hear uh, from him don't say this is not okay. Who, who is going to stand up for the people that are fearful, actively fearful for being Jews or being a minority or being someone who may be deported? Trump can do whatever he needs to do to sort of not, lack of a better term, backpedal from a lot of the things that he stood for during his election and his campaign. Um, but a lot of it comes down to the media. I mean, Trump had many times before and many times after downplayed or you know stated that he was that he was not for the KKK except for that one interview about duke he claims that it was a technical error there were lots of technical errors during his uh, campaign i'd like to see moving forward that he steps in and says these things are not okay mm. that there are people in the public that are getting anti-semitic things thrown at them but it, it's a lot of it's the media. A lot of it is look at all of these things that people are doing and what is saying. The media, about Trump? Though, are we a monolith? I mean, this me- media it depends. Like you could have paid attention to CNN and they covered every debate and they gave everything to Trump. I don't I don't get my information from CNN. Where do you get your I information from? Where do you get your information? A from? lot of it from NPR, from The Washington and The New York Post, New York Times. Washington, the New York uh, Times, New York Times had to deal with a billboard in front of it as well, it, right? So. It's, yes, it, it it's very concerning. Um, I I will tell you that a lot of the concern that I have, and sort of taking it in a different direction on to, off topic, but I I think a lot of the concern that people have, whoever you are, if you did not vote for Trump, is where is the information that the Trump supporter? Where did it come from? My daughter, six years old, at a Jewish school came home to me the day after, and she said, Mommy, one of my friends told me that Hillary shot someone in the face. Is this true? This isn't true, right, Mommy? It's not true. That means that one of the kids in her school told her that that's what happened. That child had gotten that information from their household. I have to deal with the fact that there is so much out there that isn't true or there is truth that has been skewed, or there are people that are saying things about our country that Trump may or may not agree with. But what I need now is for Trump to stand up and say that these things are not okay. This is not where our country is going. This is not where our country belongs. And I'd like to see that sooner than later. It's not confirmed yet, but there are an increasing number of reports over the weekend that Trump will uh, appoint Governor Mike Huckabee, ambassador to Israel. It's a curious selection. He's openly evangelical. There's been a uh, marriage of convenience between evangelicals and uh, uh, Jews in the United States for a long time. I mean, Huckabee himself, I remember him going to Boca Raton and fundraising in 2008 at the synagogues. That There's a you know cross-section, a kind of messianic return of Jews to the promised land and whatnot. What do you think about that alliance, Rabbi Knopf? I mean, will you take will you take an ally to Israel any way you can get it? 
Well, sure. I mean, I, <clears throat> um, I think that the, I mean, the alliance is a, is an interesting one uh, between evangelicals and Jews. I mean, because on, on on the one hand, it's um, it's really nice and 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 useful uh, to have uh, uh, evangelical support of Israel. Um, although, uh, you know, I have to be honest that the uh, that the vision of uh, Israel and the uh, push for you know the direction that that uh, Israel should take and the decisions that it should make um, are often that the evangelical community uh, tends to support um, are is not necessarily a vision of Israel that I share. Um, and what I mean by that is that I that I um, I hear a lot of um, Islamophobia coming out of the evangelical community, uh, and that plays out in their support of Israel. Uh, and uh, and and um, uh, a lot of uh, uh, hawkishness, military hawkishness, with respect to Israel, and that plays out in their support of Israel too. So, uh, on the one hand, um, I, I I love having friends wherever I can find them. On the other hand, um, you know, th- there even within that friendship, there are um, there are fault lines. Um, and the other piece is, uh, you know, the the Jewish community um, is. Uh, 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 you know, is a sort of interesting animal because on the one hand, um, you know, one of the sig- most significant issues in the American Jewish community is uh, is Israel and the American-Israel alliance, as it should be. Um, but uh, there's a reason why um, 75%, give or take, of American Jews vote reliably Democratic, and that's because um, we tend to be uh, liberal on social issues. We tend to uh, be um, uh, progressive with respect to things like uh, uh, immigration policy uh, and, uh, and and tax policy um, in terms of welfare and, and the social safety net um, uh, in terms of civil liberties uh, and and on all those on all those issues um, we tend to be at odds it seems with a significant portion of, of the evangelical community uh, so uh, so the the relationship and, and friendship in my view, um, is is kind of frayed uh, on an interpersonal level. I have a lot of really great friendships with a lo- with with a number of evangelical Christians and their pastors, um, and uh, and and I find uh, all the evangelicals I know to be uh, extremely wonderful and kind and thoughtful uh, and uh, and and compassionate people. Um, but there are definitely fault lines in in our political leanings. Evangelical women, incidentally, have always been interested in me, but I've had to keep the faith. Yeah, good. And yeah. Um, anyway, you know, I just... I, no, there's I mean, a just about everybody, it's, you're pretty irresistible. I am, and I can't help it, but you know, my lines, ship has yeah. sailed. I'm sorry. Look, look, I just have to, there's a, there's a Your feeling wife of. Your a lucky lady. Thank you. I want to <laughs> confess, you have two rabbis in front of you and a, 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 a fellow, you know, Soccer tribeswoman tribesman. I don't know. We we have an affinity, and I see your minivan often, and I roll my window down and say Shabbat Shalom. Right. So, uh, Rabbi Asher, in all seriousness, BDS. Yes. Right. Oi, gewalt. Oh, gewalt. Boycott, divestiture, sanctions. Right. We're talking about an increasingly mainstream, uh, college-centric movement in this country to ostracize Israel, just like. Um, South Africa was ostracized during the period of apartheid. Don't buy anything from them. Stigmatize them. We've seen it happen with uh, SodaStream, a, a you know Israeli company that would have assets in in our argued territory that we don't even want you giving jobs to 
Palestinians, if it means a perpetuation of colonialism. You're seeing now in universities, like you just talk to anyone. I don't I don't have stats for you, but you show up at an activities fair now, freshman year, whether it's the Ivy League, UCLA, University of Michigan, and the BDS movement has a table. Whereas, you know, when I was in college 20, 25 years ago, that kind of stuff was verboten. It was looked at as, um, you know, transitively anti-Israel, ergo anti-Semitism. Now, Rabbi, you, you see that there's just much more of an uh, open currency to it. It's not as exotic anymore. Yeah, well, BDS, I believe, is the anti-Semitism of our time. And what I mean by that is that not everybody who's in the BDS movement is anti-Semitic, but uh, the founders of BDS, the uh, officers of BDS, uh, those pushing BDS, are, are singling out uh, what it happens to be the only state that's Jewish, and they have decided to focus their wrath on one country in the world. They haven't focused their wrath on North Korea. They haven't focused their wrath on Iran. They haven't focused their wrath on Syria. They haven't focused their wrath on any countries that have uh, oppressed Jews or have oppressed minorities. Um, they have picked Israel. And... Uh, that, to me, of course, is extremely offensive and also is a motivation for trying to find friends wherever we can get them. We are a small people. Is it about 9 million people the size of New Jersey? It's, um, I would say— You're talking about Israel? Oh, Israel, yeah. Israel's about— um, 9 to 13 million. Yeah, 9 million, but 6 million Jews. Seven, so it's fewer. It, um, of course, there are many Muslims and many Christians in Israel as well. So Israel itself probably has about 6 million Jews, I believe. But uh, my sister lives in Israel. My nieces and nephews live in Israel. My uh, aunt and uncle and cousins live in Israel. I'll take friends wherever we can get them, and I will attack those who are seeking the economic destruction of the only place that we know can be and has been an absolute refuge and safe haven for our people. And what I mean by attack is, Ruvain, the number of states that have come out to say, no, we will not be a part of this. We will make sure that the companies that we do business with will not single out the only Jewish state in, in, in the world. In fact, um, in Michigan this past week, there was a BDS motion. And at the University of Michigan. At the University of Michigan. And I was very grateful that there are activists on the ground because we are a small people and we are outnumbered considerably going around the world. But thankfully, we have skilled um, uh, activists, student activists who organized against this movement, was able to shoot it down. And I have begun to have hope that we might be turning the corner, that states around this country, university campuses around this country, are beginning to realize this isn't going to go away. We all thought it was craziness that in the 21st century, there's going to be this level of anti-Semitism. And what we realize is that we have to mobilize. And if you don't kill evil, it will prosper. And to signal out one country, the, the Jewish country in the world, is a form of evil. So the Orthodox community is not a monolithic community. When it comes to Zionism, when, even when it comes to BDS, as you know, Peter Beinart is an Orthodox Jew and someone who is involved in the BDS movement. And, um, and uh, as you know, there were many, Jack Lou, who is uh, Orthodox Jew, uh, working in this administration. And uh, when it comes to the election, when it comes to Zionism, when it comes to BDS, 
um, modern Orthodoxy or Orthodoxy or traditional Jews, the entire Jewish community, is, uh, has uh, many multiple voices that are heard. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking about uh, Trump, Judaism, Israel, everything up in the air now, what with all the new coalitions and strange bedfellows. Uh, Rabbi David Asher, you said you'll take friends wherever you can get them. Now, what I think about, and, and to bring this conversation back to the new, the impending White House, is the strange coalition that has happened. For example, if if Trump is the person that many people on the right wing, even in Israel, would want, the fact that how he got there, it's almost Machiavellian, if he had to dog whistle his way there and indulge all of these right wing, uh, borderline Nazi, straight line Nazi uh, impulses to get there, it's fine because in the end he's going to appoint pro-Israel people. It's fine in the end because he's going to be the biggest uh, obstacle to Iran being a normalized nation as opposed to a rogue nation. How do we how do we how do we square with that? I mean, we are we are trained ever since I was in Sunday school and Hebrew school. Let me say it to be necessarily a paranoid people because time and again in history we've been oppressed. When we said it couldn't happen again, it did happen again, um, and we've been the the path of least resistance. That the people who have been um, pilloried and scapegoated and the slippery slopes are left and right. So, how do we remain vigilant? even when we're not monolithic as a voting block. I want to bring Rabbi Knopf into the conversation just by kind of giving your listeners something that they can go away with, something concrete. All parts of the Jewish community would mobilize together to fight any form of discrimination. What I mean by that is that uh, Rabbi Knopf and myself would walk arm in arm together the 90 miles from Richmond to Washington, D.C., should what happened in our past uh, happen again. What I mean by that is internment of the Japanese, grants orders against the Jewish community, the various anti-Semitic uh, habits that were formed a generation ago. Does this idea the, of a Muslim registry, for example, does that trip the wire, Rabbi Knopf? For me, yes. And have you had imams reaching out to you and saying that this requires a, a new unanimity, a unity, put Israel aside for a minute and BDS aside. This is existential domestically. Well, okay. So the the, the second the second part, and, of I, and I will yeah. concede that this is treacherous. This is a minefield yeah. conversationally. So take your time talking about it. The, uh, the the second part of what you said, I, I I think, is a premise that I don't agree with, which is that uh, um, all imams or leaders in the Muslim community are um, inherently anti-Israel or supportive of BDS, which is uh, I haven't experienced that to be true. Um, the, the, the first thing, um, I haven't had, uh, leaders in the Muslim community reaching out to me about it. Um, and I actually wouldn't expect them to, um, this is something that, uh, um, uh, we as Jews should be proactive in, uh, reaching out, uh, uh, across religious divides to any community, like Rabbi Asher said, to any community that's, uh, um, that's threatened on the basis of their religion, um, ethnic background, um, country of origin, whatever it might be. Uh, so, uh, so for me, the, uh, the, the notion of, uh, creating a, a database or registry of Muslims is, um, is, uh, uh, not only uh, offensive, but, uh, but, but terrifying. Um, uh, now first because of uh, the danger it poses to that community. Uh, but also, um, I think that the slippery slope in that case is, uh, is, is really real, um, abiding, uh, that kind of discrimination uh, makes future discrimination 
uh, all the more possible and all the more real. I mean, you're already seeing incoming members of the administration, potential members of the administration, supporters of the uh, incoming administration uh, refer back to Japanese internment uh, as a positive argument for why it should be okay to register Muslims. So that's a good example of how discrimination of one type uh, can uh, build uh, a, an argument for discrimination of other types. So we need to be really vigilant, I think, in my opinion, um, uh, as Jews about uh, about that kind of proposal. If I, if I can, um, I think the threshold for me is, again, what we've seen in our past. Of course, we need extra vigilance now. We need efforts that unify. That's the role of rabbis. That's the role of religious leaders. Um, is is to be to work as hard as we can on unifying our communities and our respective congregations and societies that we hail from. The threshold might be a little different if this country goes backwards t- towards the awful history of Jim Crow laws, towards the the awful uh, the the awful history of you know various religious discriminations. You know, I spoke to the imam the day after the election, and and I looked at him and I said. You know what's the temperature of your congregation? You know where are things at? And he said he's concerned about he's concerned about some bullying for kids, which is a very sad reality that something that goes on in Washington should affect our kids in their schools. But he was calm. He was he was confident. He was confident, and he believed he seemed to believe in the American people or in this country to ultimately make the right decisions. And I believe that meant Trump as well. Uh, so. Uh, I, uh, is it, is I'm it optimistic. Really, you're I'm optimistic, optimistic, but is it a stretch? And is it a stretch for me to to bring up Vienna in the 1920s or 1930s? You just read these histories and these articles and these testimonials time and time and again that it's not going to happen here. It's going to blow over. There was a, an excerpt in the New York Times that described Adolf Hitler as a charlatan and he'll be checked. And look, I'm only bringing it up because it's out there. It's out there in the firmament. I think the conversation is so important to be had. I think it needs to be done respectfully as our president-elect. Granted, I would have preferred a more comfortable outcome, um, but I think the conversation needs to be had. I I agree. I, I am not sure what the consequences to all of these these questions that are being asked of Trump. Trump, what are you going to do with your family business when you get into office? What, wh- how, how can he follow the rules and still do what Trump does, which is make his own rules? That's why he was elected, because people want to see change. Well, how do we, as those who have concerns, um, state those concerns and still support those who supported him. What are we going to do about it? You know, there, is a, there is a history, especially in the 20th century of the United States, of populism uh, really marinating itself in, in oftentimes virulent anti-Semitism. If you think about Father Conklin, mm-hmm. uh, Father sure. Coughlin back in the day, um, you know, Huey Long, uh, especially in you know, this canard of Jews controlling corporations and the media and global finance and people sometimes even citing from the, you know, the, the, the fraud that was, you know, the protocol of the elders of the Zion. Um, it, you know, this gets into a nuanced point, but if the Democratic Party and the Republican Party have both realized that populism is much more important than they thought, that that great moderation, that the kind of the Clinton middle is not holding anymore. The Bush middle or center center of the right middle is not holding anymore. Does it, again, legitimately concern you that the mix that comes out of this in two years and in four years, like, for example, Bernie Sanders, he was he stood to be the first Jewish 
a major presidential party nominee in this election, but he took no pains to to tell people that he was Jewish, for example, to announce that or to blow kisses to Israel. In fact, he said that, uh, you know, uh, Jews in Israel need to be more mindful of the people, the suffering of the people in Gaza. And I'm not sure if he ever enunciated any emotions about BDS, but the idea is that he would have been more amenable to that. And that is looked at. There are a lot of people hand-wringing now saying, you know, gosh, if he was the nominee, he may well have beaten Trump. Yeah, well, um, I th- I want to agree agree with what uh, Robin had said, and that is uh, the conversation. Robin Galper, not Robin, Ruvain, Robin, not Ruvain, Robin Farzad. Galper. Sure. That's correct. Um, conversation, if it if done respectfully, I think uh, can can accomplish a lot. There's no skin off our backs if we have conversation. There's nothing to lose by having dialogue. There's nothing. Uh, there's no cost to have the conversation. Yes, there's there's no question. There are some question marks about uh, some of Trump's appointments. There are also question marks about uh, the media's portrayal of anti-Semitism in a rather cavalier way. Th- these are issues. We need to talk about them because I believe the discussion will go a long way to prevention. No, uh, to be frank with you, Ruvain, uh, any comparisons to Hitler that have been made over the course of this election season have been offensive to me, have been insulting to me. Um, my mother's family is from Germany. My uh, great-grandfather was a textile magnate. It was all taken away from him. My, uh, my great-grandfather, my great-grandmother, and uh, my grandmother's sister were murdered in Auschwitz. No, we're not talking about Hitler. I understand people want to be uh, um, ahead of the game, but we need to have our wits about us, and we need to be extremely vigilant, no question about it, but we need to also be um, realistic about where where we're at. And um, as, uh, as the grandchild of Holocaust survivors, um, we are nowhere near to answer your question. But is it, the is 20s it legit or not? Call me out on it. Is it legit or not my observation that white supremacists and neo-Nazis and borderline apologists for that movement have had a currency and legitimacy out of this election that they haven't had in decades here in the United States? Extremism and uh, has been rampant. And yes, I cannot believe, I cannot believe that in the year 2016, we are talking about Nazism. How backwards is this country at this moment that that is even in our newspaper? Well, I do want to also take you across... The ocean. I mean, we're very U.S. centric. I think in the few minutes we have left, this is a very huge conversation as well in France, mm-hmm. uh, where Marine Le Pen and the far right National Front over there, who, you know, her father was much more of a kind of a, you know, he he talked about the gas chambers and the Holocaust as a kind of a footnote of history. But very bizarrely, you would think now, she actually has increasing support among uh, the Jews of France because there's this coalescence of of. Well, the common uh, concern here is Islamic extremism. You saw the Charlie Hebdo attacks, uh, the attack, the awful massacre a year ago at Bataclan Theater. Um, you know, the tides are shifting. If you look at the Dutch, right, um, the, 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 the different conversations being had there, it's no longer kind of right-wing anti-Judaism versus Judaism. And it's, it's much the same here in the United States. I want to pick up on that, but I, I just want to echo what what uh, Rabbi Asher just said because I think that the um, that the comparisons to, uh, to to Hitler and to the Holocaust that we've heard since the rise of of Trump and and now 
um, strike me as 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 wrongheaded and inappropriate. I mean, there was already a danger that uh, that that we had had. I remember in the Bush years, and then then during the Obama years, where there was a tendency to characterize uh, your you know the way you argued against your opponent was by making analogy to Hitler and the Holocaust. Right. Um, and I, and I think that that's uh, that that's really dangerous. Um, and I and I and I think that uh, that in in this case the the analogy still is inappropriate, although. Uh, what we are seeing is alarming, and it's and it's uh, crazy that we're even having this conversation. Um, but there, but I want to pick up on the question that you just asked, uh, Reuven. Uh, but uh, just one other thing before that, which is uh, that my ability to take a wait and see approach to the administration. Um, I want to, you know, so you use a buzzword of the left here, which is I want to sort of, uh, um, you know, own my privilege uh, in being able to say that because as much as I'm um, a, a Jewish American, um, my Jewishness is also wrapped up in in uh, my whiteness. I'm a white um, young American male um, that, uh, you know, the Jewish community is very uh, influential and powerful in, in America, disproportionately so. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I, I, I grew up, uh, you know, an upper middle class white person. So I'm not, um, the person most immediately in the crosshairs of the new administration. Uh, and so I have a luxury of taking a wait and see approach that, uh, I think other people rightly feel that they don't have. Um, so I want to own that for a minute, but I also, to your question, I think that, uh, what, you know, what we are seeing in America and across the world, I mean, we saw it, uh, with, uh, with, with Brexit, uh, we're seeing it in France, in uh, in, in Hungary, uh, throughout Europe are are the rise of these uh, sort of uh, right wing uh, nationalist, ethnic nationalist uh, ideologies, uh, and uh, that to me is uh, is where the appropriate analogy comes to the climate that produced World War II, um, because we really went through two world wars in a context of. Um, rising and competing nationalisms of of protectionisms um, of of uh, kind of um, uh, isolationist uh, sort of ideologies that ended up uh, uh, producing instability and competition uh, that uh, that that forced the world into war. I, I worry, uh, and there's lots of unknowns at this moment. We don't know exactly how it's all going to play out. Um, but I worry at the rise of all of these nationalisms everywhere, including in uh, in the U.S., about what it will mean for uh, global stability and global conflict. Uh, you know, for all of the criticisms that are justified against uh, globalization that we heard throughout the campaign, from Sanders to Clinton uh, to Trump, um, that was a, a thread throughout the campaign. You hear you heard it in the arguments about Brexit in in, in uh, England. Um, for all of the justifiable critiques of globalization, I think one thing that is worth noting about globalization is that we've gone through you know uh, seventy years since World War II without um, a significant world conflict. Um, you know that uh, that that was brutal and bloody, uh, and a lot of that was the move toward increased cooperation, uh, inc- increased. Uh, you know, governmental transparency and uh, and and uh, and yet the UN and NATO have never been as marginalized as they well, are as now. they are right now. So that's I, that I think you know glo- globalization produces world peace, um, and I think that that's a fear that I have, uh, not necessarily of a holocaust, but of a really unstable and potentially uh, um, conflict-ridden world that we're on the precipice of. But uh, for sure, I mean. Uh, 
you know, that New York Times story notwithstanding, uh, uh, Hitler was never shy about uh, his anti-Semitism. He was, from, from its inception, uh, Nazism uh, was, uh, was virulently anti-Semitic uh, and, uh, and, and made it clear that its goal was to uh, rid Germany of its Jews or at least marginalize uh, German Jews. Um, the, the, the development of the final solution was a little bit later, uh, but, uh, but, uh, but there, there are, I think, legitimate and clear distinctions between what we're seeing now and what we saw then. Uh, final thoughts, um, hope, despair, combination of both. Robin Galpern? Yeah, um, I think both of the, all of those points were very well stated um, by both of you. Um, Trump was not elected by extremists. Extremists are small in number. He was elected by the majority of the system that we call the democracy that we have now. Um, well, he was not the pop- technically uh, asterisk, not the majority. I mean, he had, he got like twenty five percent of the uh, you know voting public, right? The, the 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 half that showed up, right? So it, yes, yes. Um, what I want to make sure is that to prevent this, um, to, using Hitler right now is not appropriate. He Hitler succeeded in everything that he succeeded. Er, so much of what he succeeded to do. Um, that is not where we are. But there are people that are that are listening to what is out there. And the question is, what can we do as passionate, educated Americans to make sure that what's being heard is productive to all minorities? I'm a Jewish American. I have three kids. I'm raising Jewish. Um, I need them to know that I'm doing everything that I can not to be complacent, to take the consequence of what we have now, and to make it positive. There's a lot of ways to get a lot of information, and I want to make sure that my my message is being able to be heard. And those who those extremists that want to cause harm to people, I want to make sure that we are louder than them, that we are more out there than them, because... That is the America that I want to live in. That is the world that I want to live in. And it's, I think, it's the safety of the majority, the safety of, of, of human life. What, what else more is there? Close us out to our kiddish lunch, Rabbi yeah. Asher. <laughs> you know, uh, you've asked two rabbis and a member of the Jewish community to come on to talk about a political issue. But not, uh, none of us here are experts when it comes to politics. What we're here to talk about really the cohesiveness of our communities and our congregation and our hopes and dreams for the future. Um, and, and related to uh, religiosity, religious expression, and uh, religious realities. I think I'll close with um, a reference to uh, the Old Testament, to uh, the, the prophets. And, you know, it's interesting that Ahab, or Ahab, one of these kings that uh, really allowed idolatry to prosper. And the rabbis talk about how such an idolatrous king could be so successful in terms of his empire. And the answer to that question is that God seemed to reward Ahav for unifying the people. The unity, despite the fact that their unity, their values were misplaced, despite the fact that their religious expression was antithetical to traditional Judaism. He, uh, in a sense, turned towards this unity, was uh, 
impressed with the unity and allowed this empire to flourish. And in closing, I would say that in the Ethics of Our Fathers in Perkei Avot, it says in both the first and the second chapter to be wary of government. You and I are familiar with that. Democracy is, as we know, the best, worst form of government. The, uh, the idea is that um, we need to be wary of government and we always need to be on our toes because government, unfortunately, doesn't always serve the people we want in the way that we want it to. And thankfully, we have this beautiful system of checks and balances in this country. And uh, we have hope in this country um, that the checks and balances will be employed properly, that we'll have a successful uh, uh, term now with our new president and with this new administration. And we hope that everyone will be cheering America on as it continues to uh, define its identity in this 21st century. Rabbi Nav? So there's a joke about uh, what's the difference between a Jewish pessimist and a Jewish optimist. A Jewish pessimist uh, says things couldn't possibly get any worse. And a Jewish optimist says, oh, yes, they can. Right? But, uh, but I'm, I'm really hopeful. I mean, our tradition says uh, in, in the book of Psalms, Hazorim bedima berina yiktsoru, that those who sow in tears will reap in joy. Uh, there's always there's a trajectory in the Jewish tradition from darkness to light, from degradation to dignity um, that doesn't always move in a straight line. Sometimes there's backwards, sometimes there's forwards, sometimes there's zigzags. Uh, but uh, in the words of Martin Luther King, which I think echoes a biblical principle, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. We're going to move forward. We're, we're, uh, we're going to have the society that uh, we envision and that our tradition envisions. Um, it just uh, will uh, take us some time to build it, but we're going to get there. And you know how we're going to get there? While I have you all here, I'm going to put you on the spot and make a landmark proposal. Oh, Wait boy. for it. Wait for it. And also, you're 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 a Georgian. Right? Yeah. You're a Southerner. I am. We're all well, now I'm a Virginian. Now. You're not a Virginian, but you were in Atlanta beforehand. You are a man of the peach state. Uh, you know how we can heal the red state, blue state divide in this country? If we agree in this room to put our heads together and finally build a kosher Chick-fil-A that's open on Sundays that all Americans can partake in when you're craving Chick-fil-A. You're right? going to have to name it something else. You can name it, Rabbi. Uh, Rabbi Asher has, has Kashruth authority. Oof. You have Southern cred. You can bring our capital uh, investors in, Robin <laughs> Galpern. You we know real invest. estate. You know triple net lease REITs. I mean, can you at least verbally I commit got a to great place for this. this? I think Ophelé sounds very tasty. <laughs> Coming to uh, coming city. to a red state yeah. near you. We'll have to figure out the buttermilk problem. But uh, There are ways. Where there's a will, there's a way. Uh, thank you so much, Rabbi David Asher, Rabbi Michael Knopf, Robin Galpern, concerned Jewish mother and wife. Uh, this is very, very, very important, and I am so grateful that you made the time to be on our show. Thank you for having us. Thank, thank you. you. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Listen to us on NPR One, iTunes at FullDRadio.com, Stitcher, Acast, SoundCloud, Apple TV. Looking to sponsor this fine broadcast? Holler at me on Twitter at FullDRadio. We are ecumenical, reform, conservative, orthodox, recreational. This week in Virginia, next week in D.C., next year in the promised land. I'm Robin Farzad. Back at you soon. <laughs> <laughs>